Thanks, Justin. I thought this would be a good time if maybe we could just offer our pray prayers of the people. And in your chat section, I posted uh, a couple of um, uh, stanzas of a prayer for Independence Day. And so I'm just going to ask uh, a, a few of you if you would just lead us and then you'll see the line where it says all and then we'll all repeat together. So um, if we could just jump in and do that. And um, Gary, would you lead us in that first sentence under uh, the first uh, paragraph where it says prayers of the people on Independence Day? And we'll just begin our corporate prayers together this way. Uh, I'm not sure I see it yet. Uh, Do you see the chat section? Yeah, um, okay. Raise a hallelujah. Oh, Lord, give you praise. Scroll down a little bit. Okay. Lord, bless the leaders of our land. With well, it says, thank you, Lord, for the freedom and abundance. Oh, well. It starts right below uh, from David Sunday to everyone, Gary. Right, right below Justin's song. Well, Bill, why don't you go ahead and read it for us? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll step in. That's what happens when you speak up. Yep. <laughs> All right. Let's let's be in prayer. Um, thank you, Lord, for the freedom and the abundance that we enjoy. For those who have sac that sacrifice and fight to preserve it. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our abundance. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, we give you praise. Hey, Brad Watson, can you read that next part? Yes, as I unmute myself. That's good. Thank you. As Lord, bless the leaders of our land with humility and wisdom that we may be a people of peace among ourselves and a blessing to other nations of the earth. And all together, Lord, Lord this nation. This nation. Jen Watson, would you pray that next section? To the president and members of the cabinet, to governors of states, mayors of cities, senators and representatives, grant wisdom and understanding in the exercise of their duties. Give courage and strength to correct oppressive systems of inequality. All. Give us grace to your servants, O Lord. Harley, can you find that next part that I just posted to the judges of our courts? Can you read that for us? Uh, interested to enforce our laws, provide discernment and honor yeah. protection and provision. May they be ambassadors of reconciliation and your justice. All together, give grace, give grace to your servants, O oh Lord. Lord. And Laurel, can you read that final part? You have to unmute, Laurel. And finally, teach us to rely on your strength and to accept our responsibilities as fellow citizens, that we may be part of your gracious impartiality and care for the needs among us that we may serve you faithfully in our generation and honor your holy name. Together, 
For yours is the kingdom, O Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Well, I appreciate you uh, going through that with me. I know it feels a little clunky, and you probably did not get uh, or were prepared to be called on, but there's something about when we come together in corporate worship that we're not just coming to a spectator event, but we're coming as a participant uh, as someone who's not just observing from the outside, but actually willing to crawl up on an operating table and allow surgery to be done on us. And sometimes it invites us to a level of conviction, uh, discomfort. Uh, sometimes it, it requires something of us. And so it's good for us to just, even if it feels like we're going through the motions or it doesn't emotionally trigger something, I think there's something so valuable about raising a hallelujah even when you feel like you have a hard time staying on pitch. It's really important for us to be able to offer prayers, even though Zoom doesn't really let us sync up super well. There is something beautiful about it. And today, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to find your way to the Psalm 122. Um, and we use different versions of the Bible. Sometimes I teach out of the New International Version. Sometimes I use the New Living Translation or the Amplified. I want to encourage you to find your way into the message translation. Now, you can do this if you're using an app, but uh, the reason I want to use the message is because uh, Eugene Peterson was the one who wrote this translation, and I've been kind of revisiting a book that he wrote 20 years ago called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I've taught this series before in some different fashion, but his book, which really highlights what we want to go through in these Psalms, was a, is just a wonderful piece. And so I just encourage you to go there. But before we get there, let me just set it up by saying this. Who, um, who can still hear their parents' voice reminding them of their manners? Things like saying, you know, I don't know what your parents was really important to them. I don't know how they had this reoccurring voice in your life to try and remind you that you were theirs and they wanted you to act appropriately. Uh, maybe it was your posture. And a lot of girls grow up and their mom's always messing with their posture. Uh, you know, I knew one girl in Alabama. She came to stop by and visit us. And she says, oh, mama would kill me knowing that I left without my pearls and my lipstick. And uh, I thought, wow, she's got a lot to work against here. But um, manners, whether it be your posture or, or whether it be your thank yous. Uh, do you remember the, the all important thank you? You know, sort of, did you tell Mrs. So-and-so thank you? Or, you know, I'm waiting or what do you say? I mean, the idea of thankfulness was ingrained in us. And it's a really good thing to do, except that oftentimes we do it like, oh yeah, that's right. Thank you. And we don't feel it on a heart level. Gratitude is something that we have to be taught. And yet other times it comes naturally, like with this most natural expression, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Well, I read an article that uh, neuroscience uh, has proven that gratitude can literally rewire our, our brain to be happier. And so there's these two doctors uh, who did a study uh, and they published their work in 2015 about the physical outcomes of expressing gratitude. Now, 
they had this subject group and they broke it up into thirds. And a third of the group was asked to keep a daily journal where they had moments of appreciation, moments they were thankful for. It could be little or grand, but the idea was keep a gratitude journal for a week and, and name the things that, and, and, and again, be specific about the things that were like, yes, that was cool, that was awesome. That was nice, but be grateful. Now, the other third of the group uh, was asked to write things that were irritants. Going through each day, all the little things that didn't go their way. Annoyances, irritations, things that were just a disappointment, but to keep a journal, a record of the things that bugged them. These were the negative experiences. And then, as you can imagine, there was a third grouping of people within the study, and it was just neutral things that happened. They would sort of record what they went through, not attaching a positive or a negative to it, but they would go through and name the things that they experienced during the day. Well, at the end of this 10-week study, each group was asked to record how they felt physically, but also in general about life. And you can imagine the outcomes, maybe, but the gratitude group reported feeling more optimistic and positive about life in general. In fact, this group also was sorted as being more physically active and they reported fewer doctor visits than those who wrote about only their negative experience. Gratitude makes a difference. Our posture of our heart, our perspective in our minds can wire it so that we can actually become grateful people. Now, stuff happens in life, and I'm painfully aware of it, as you are. We're trying to celebrate America this weekend, and it's a little bit different because America, I love you, but I just don't understand. You're kind of freaking me out. See, being grateful isn't always easy. I can't just flip a switch and somehow feel grateful when the world feels broken or when I feel vulnerable uh, or when I struggle to trust government, big business, banking institutions, elected leaders, uh, or even the neighbors in our city. So when I bring up the idea of gratitude, which is one of our seven rhythms at Mission Hills, I am not trying to give you a motivational talk about the power of positive thinking. What I would say is that if you struggle with what's going on in the world right now, I would say, good, you have a pulse. <laughs> there should be in each of us a level um, of grief, of sadness, and this hunger for change. If you're like me, you've not only felt a little bit helpless, you felt enraged. You might have even felt hopeless or helpless. I believe, though, our sense of injustice, the heartache, the sadness we feel is exactly how God feels. And in feeling this way, I believe the creator of the universe, who you and I bear the image of, is drawing us closer. See, the reason people of faith, uh, or excuse me, God calls 
all of us to, to not just see, but to feel that um, uh, is, is because he's drawing us closer and he wants us to see and to feel exactly what he seals, sees and feels. And so the point though, is that God, while he does see and feel all that, is neither surprised nor deterred. And the reason the people of faith, Christians, are called together is because we have this expression where we're summoned to worship God that transcends our circumstances, transcends our understanding, seeks God for a greater sense of wisdom, and it can actually be what Scripture would refer to as the lifter of our countenance. See, we find God's strength and comfort when we gather in the company of other seekers and we limp in to worship together in the truth of God's word. And seeking his presence matters. It makes a difference. It allows us to live with hope and truth amidst brokenness. So church isn't just something that we should just go, yeah, that's a good idea. Gathering for corporate worship isn't just something that we should just make time for when nothing else comes up. Gathering in this setting is something that happens that we can't experience any other time in the week. And so what I want to do over the next several weeks is continue this journey, this pilgrimage, uh, through a set of a subset of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. In fact, I've named this series Pilgrim's Progress because these psalms are often referred to as the Pilgrim Psalms. Psalm 120 to 134 are songs that are sung by the people of God where they had three yearly pilgrimages that they would make for these festivals that were in Jerusalem. And the people of God would make this journey, and they would make it in mask. And along the way, they would sing out these psalms as they approached the great city of Jerusalem, of which they believed was the home, the dwelling of God's presence. And so they would travel along in great anticipation and would have had these songs memorized all the way to the house of God. Maybe the only analogy that you and I can relate to is after Thanksgiving, because that's the only time we're supposed to bring out Christmas music, right? But after Thanksgiving and before Christmas, we bring out the Christmas carols. Some are just sort of winter wonderland, but some are based on the birth of Christ. And we have this way of growing our anticipation, growing our excitement towards Christmas and all that, that that entails by these songs that we begin to sing leading up to the date. Well, the Hebrews were the same way. The people of God would have these pilgrimages, and they would begin to collectively grow their anticipation to worship God together. And they would feed off the energy of one another. So the picture was returning, returning to the house of God returning to the presence of God. So when we gather for worship, what we're doing that we can't experience or access personally, independently, and privately is the, the, the metaphor of returning is significant for many things, but here it's like a returning to the arms of Christ, to the rest that's found and the peace that ensues of how we experience the body of Christ through the body of believers. 
today in Psalm 122 is a song of a person who's eagerly decided, eagerly to go to church, with, who with excitement and hope wants to worship God. This is not someone who's being drugged. This is not someone who feels some cultural obligation. This is not someone who's trying to fit it into an already busy day of extracurricular activities and home improvement projects. This is someone who's like, this is the most and best thing that can happen today. So Psalm 122 is a powerful psalm. And I want to post those if you don't have uh, if you don't have access to that version, I'm going to post it in the chat so we can read it together. Uh, and in Psalm 122, uh, we read these words. Let me try and post the whole thing. It doesn't let me post it all at once because it's limited in its size. But I'm going to post the whole thing so you, we can read around. And then you see the beginning of it. And we'll start there by saying um, Psalm 122 from the message. It says, when they said, let's go to the house of God, my heart leaped for joy. Did you catch that? I don't know how many of you woke up this morning and your heart leapt for joy thinking, I get to worship, I get to pray, and I get to listen to Pastor Dave's talk. And I'm not saying it's the best show in town. It's super clunky, but there is this returning to this corporate experience of resting in the arms of Christ. There's something really beautiful about that. And he says, and, and now we're on, we're here in O Jerusalem, inside of the city of Jerusalem's walls. So they paint this picture, Jerusalem, this is kind of around verse three, well-built city, built as a place for worship. Now, I would contend that you are now the temple of God. Originally, it was a physical structure, but now we are the temple of God. And guess what? You and I are built a well-built temple, a place for worship. So let me just make a first observation. The pilgrimage, the journey that we're on, and last week I described that journey is the great metaphor for faith in all of life because it's both an event that you begin and it's also a process. So all of us have begun a journey with Christ. Some of us are still trying to figure out what we actually believe about Jesus and his resurrection. Others have been down this road and are needing to reboot. But wherever you are in your journey, it's like this. Like any long road trip, it requires us to gas up. It requires us to pull over and stop to refuel. And our worship together offers us, hear this, when we gather together for corporate worship each week and we choose to come to church, it's offering us a sustainable, renewing rhythm for daily life. Now, years ago, I was trained as a lifeguard. I was always a good swimmer, but I had never swam with a lot of technique. I never had lessons, but when I went to go past lifeguard training, you had to swim a 500-yard um, distance. That's down and back in an Olympic-sized pool 10 times. And you had to do it in under 10 minutes. And when we started the certification program, I couldn't do it. You know why? Because all I could do was put my head down and swim like a sprinter, full kick and breathing only when I ran out of breath. But the problem was 
I got gassed after about the third lap. I've started swimming in my pool with a resistance band tied to the, to the side gate. And I'm having to learn that to swim straight for 10 minutes, every stroke, I'm taking a breath. And that's the only way I can actually complete the journey. Why? Because my muscles need oxygen. Keeping my head down for as long as I can hold my breath never sustains me for the long run. And worship is the sustaining and the renewing oxygen we need. And too often, it gets crowded out. Now, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, this is what uh, Eugene Peterson has to say about this. And he says, an excellent way to test people's values is to observe what we do when we don't uh, have to necessarily do anything. In other words, how we spend our leisure time, how we spend our days off, or how we spend our extra money. Um, what he's making the point for is um, how do you exist when the demands aren't there? What do you do? What excites your heart? And, and this is a really important sort of inventory for us to take. And when we hear the psalmist say, let's go to the house of God, my heart leapt for joy, we're not listening to some phony enthusiasm drumming up interest for worship and church attendance. We're witnessing what is typical of most Christians who hunger and thirst after the heart of God, after the truth of God. Um, and, and, and this is what Christians do uh, at most times and are most pleased. See, this is not the exception. It's the norm. And Eugene Peterson should, would say, worship is not something that's forced. Most Christian worship is voluntary. Now, there are exceptions. Sometimes there's an exception of the kid that feels like they're drugged to church. Sometimes there's the exception of the spouse who goes because they're other spouse, uh, the other spouse really wants him to show up. But most times worship does so because he or she wants to. This is getting to the heart of worship. What is it that we desire? And it's here that our relationship with God grows deeply. It's not only a priority, much like a, a family dinner becomes important to us. It's a desire that we prioritize. See, you might be thinking, yeah, I've been to worship a lot. What, what difference does it really make in the long term? Every Sunday sort of feels missable, except it's the chance to be well-fed. So let me read another part of this, because what he describes in Jerusalem is something that we often miss. What he describes about the corporate worship is something really important for the people of God to understand. And he says this, the city to which the tribes ascend, all God's tribes go to worship. To give thanks to the name of God, this is what it means to be Israel. Did you catch that? This is what it means to be one of God's children. This is what you were built for. See, in Genesis 1.27, we read that God, like we are all created in the image of God. 
And if you read the wisdom writings of Ecclesiastes chapter three, you understand that in the heart of every man and woman, we have been created with eternity in our hearts. There is something, this God-shaped void, this God-given design that is only satisfied when we, the people of God, seek God together. So worship fulfills not just your need, but your design to be in relationship with God. And when we worship God, here's what's happening. We're becoming more aware of the character and the nature of who God is. See, worship is less about a feeling for God, but allowing God to remind us, encourage us, strengthen us, with the truth of who God is. And so when we talk about our rhythm of gratitude at Mission Hills Church, we're talking about a critical, vertical part of our relationship with God through declaring God's worth, through understanding God's character and nature. And the way we grow in relationship, personal relationship with God, is to understand God's character and God's nature because so much happens during the week that we need a sort of radar. We need a sort of internal compass that guides us with familiarity to what is on the heart of God. That's why at the beginning I started saying, if you're feeling pangs of injustice and outrage and grief and sadness, what I'm trying to help you discern is that's exactly how God feels. And gathering in corporate worship is trying to make sense of what has happened during the week and so that we can see that God is still on his throne. And what's more, worship together is, is, invites a sort of physical posture that involves our bodies to express joy or surrender. It, 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 it expresses our need for God and our thankfulness and the hope with our physical bodies. There's a physicality to worship. Sometimes we're a little stoic and stone-faced. And, and, and think about how your physical body reacts, non-quarantine, non-COVID, social distancing, but when you see someone that you love and haven't seen for a while, how you care about someone deeply, do you stand with your hands in your pockets? Do you stand with stone-faced, stoic, hey, what's up, good to see you? Or is there some kind of response? Do you just stare without a smile? No, so this is what it means to be, follow Christ and to pursue Christ with an intimacy is that when we come to declare God's worth, when we come to seek understanding, what we're doing is showing a joyful and an anticipation and a hopefulness knowing where our hope comes from. So the last thing I just want to say out of this unique passage is that worship develops this growing awareness of, of God's presence so that in our personal and our daily lives, our hearts can become increasingly sensitized. And when they become sensitized, we're more likely to yield. We're more likely to turn and to respond. Listen to the, what the rest of, of this passage says. He says, this is what he was talking about. This is what you're created to be. And he talks about thrones for righteous judgment. 
are set there. Famous David thrones. Pray for Jerusalem's peace. Prosperity to all you Jerusalem lovers. Friendly insiders, get along. Hostile outsiders, keep your distance. For the sake of my family and friends, I say it again, live in peace. For the sake of, of, of the house of our God, I'll do my very best. So there is this picture that we often miss. But let me just say, oftentimes in ancient Israel or, or Palestine, when you were entering the cities, at the city's gates would be the seats of judgment. That would be where the city's elders or judges sat. And so the thrones for righteous judgment, or what he calls the famous David thrones, the psalmist hypes the virtue of Jerusalem. This is super important for us to understand today. One of the tests of the quality of any community is its judicial system. And here the people of God are on their pilgrimage, and a throne wasn't just a royal throne. It was the throne or seat of authority. And so when the justice was being dispensed, it was from those seats of judgment. And we think of judgment in a really negative way, like, oh my gosh, she's so judgy, or don't be so judgmental. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. This is something that the city gates would have had as these pilgrims were walking through. And this is where judicial matters were often settled. And so a lot of times these pilgrims would keep some kind of grievance, some kind of offense, some kind of need for a ruling. And they would say, well, when we come to Jerusalem, we're going to have a settling. Now, every single one of us wants to be treated fairly in business and in personal life. That's no mystery. But no one wants to go where they can't get a fair trial. And our country, as we're learning, hasn't been a place for the vulnerable, for people of color, for people on the margins, or for people that can't afford quality judicial representation to get a fair hearing. Justice is critical to the quality of life for the whole community and the entire nation. And so the people of God and the psalmist here is celebrating the virtue of Jerusalem as a place of justice. And if that doesn't ring true as you approach God's word, God's community, we need to be the people of justice, of mercy, of hope. That's not just something we go to to experience. That's something that we embody and live. And so gathering for corporate worship helps us to, to define an internal compass, a kind of lens in which we be able to put on and see how God sees, to feel how God feels. You know what the word judgment means? It means when God's, God straightens things out and puts things right. Thrones of judgment are places that the word is announced. Judgment isn't a word about things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he did that. No, it's, uh, it's a word that does things. So when we say that God is a judge, what we're seeing is God is putting love into motion. 
applying mercy, nullifying wrong, ordering goodness. We want God to have a side of justice, not just tolerance and acceptance. This is what is so important to understand about God's judgment. See, when we come to worship, and I'm so glad you came. <laughs> There's not many of us here today. It makes sense. We're in the heart of summer on a holiday weekend. But what I want to instill in us is this joy and anticipation and this, I can I really afford to miss what God is wanting to speak and to do? See, worship is not supposed to satisfy our hunger for God. It's supposed to whet our appetite for more of God. Our need for God is not simply taken care of by engaging in worship. Some of us don't feel like singers. Some of us get tired at the thought of the song that says, I could sing of your love forever. I'm like, good Lord, I'm, I, I don't, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. But here's what happens when we engage in corporate worship. It deepens us as we realize the character and the nation, nature of God so that we individually and collectively can have a growing awareness of the presence of God in our daily lives. That's why it's good to make the journey, to, to, to embark on this pilgrimage and to seek God corporately as well as personally.